Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Lainey Cameron, number one Amazon bestselling author of The Exit Strategy, a powerful and satisfying tale of two women brought together by the misdeeds of one duplicitous man and the friendship forged from their shared anger. Rand Brennan and Carly Santos are both bright and accomplished women in male-dominated fields and therefore familiar with the subtle and not-so-subtle sexism that comes along with the job. After discovering that Ren's husband and Carly's fiance are one and the same, the two women band together to overcome heartbreak and ensure their mutual success. Uh, Jennifer Klepper, the USA Today bestselling author of Unbroken Threads, had this to say about the book. A Me Too story powered by real life, real hope, and an unlikely friendship between two women who find their true strength when they join forces to fight an entire industry steeped in sexism and one man who wronged them both. With smart prose and the insight of someone who's been in the trenches, Cameron brings warmth and emotion to this Silicon Valley story of power, ambition, and friendship. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Lainey, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Landis. I'm, I'm honored to be here with you today. Yeah, well, thanks for being on here. I really loved your book. I, I just, I sped through it, uh, you know, one night and the next morning, I just, I just, I couldn't put it down. And, and I love the, uh, we'll talk about the inciting incident in just a moment, but uh, first about yourself, you, you describe yourself as a digital nomad, Lainey. What does that actually mean? So it means that I'm lucky enough being an author that I don't have to be in one particular place anymore. And my husband, Hubby, is also mobile. He's a computer consultant, so he can do his job from anywhere with good Wi-Fi. 
So in normal world, obviously this has been COVID world for the last year, but in normal world, we pick different locations six months at a time. So we've been in Cartagena, Colombia. We spend a lot of time in different locations in Mexico. We spent time in France. Basically, we pick a location, we rent an apartment for six months, and we try to become local somewhere for a six-month period, which is normally about as much as you can get a visa for most locations without having to get into lots of complexity. And so, yeah, we work from, for five years, we work from wherever we choose. That is that is really something. You've been over in over 50 countries, is that right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was kind of fun. Last year when we had the launch party for this book, one of the questions we asked on the launch party was, how many countries did I live in over the period of writing this book, which took about five years? And I think the answer was either 12 or 13 that we had lived in over the time that the book was written. Well, as I'm listening to your accent, I'm trying to think of which which of the 50 countries did you uh, start out in and then what's influenced you the most? I mean, wh where does this accent come from? Oh, this is the strangest accent in the world. In fact, we just uh, produced an audiobook of the exit strategy and some several of my friends said like, well, why aren't you reading your audiobook? And I said, because my accent is the most distracting accent in the world <laughs> because people sit there and go like, where is she from? In fact, <laughs> I used to give big keynote speeches when I worked in tech and I would always try and remember to tell people in the first line where I'm from because otherwise they would spend the entire time going, I don't know, South Africa, Canada, it's not quite right. So the answer is, this is what happens when you take a Scottish accent. I actually grew up in Scotland. And then you move it to California for 20 plus years. <laughs> Apparently, it ends up somewhere in the middle, sounding somewhat Canadian is the most frequent guess I get. Uh, that's great. I love that. And so so now you're, you're, you're uh, dialing in from where? From California? I am. Right now I am where my mother is, which is Santa Cruz, California. It's a beautiful day out there, a little bit foggy, but a lovely day. And I'm helping her move house. We're moving her from her current house to a flatter place. That's great. Well, speaking of uh, settings where you spend a lot of time, uh, you, you set this book in Silicon Valley, which uh, the exit strategy is a, it's a very male dominated area um, you know, with booming technology and lots of money changing hands. Uh, let's talk about Silicon Valley for those that don't know much about it and uh, tell us what the setting is like. So I decided to set this book in Silicon Valley and specifically in the world of startups and venture capital, because that's what I had experience with. I didn't actually set out to write a book that was about sexism in Silicon Valley. The funny thing is I had this idea for a story and then I said, where shall I set it? And the most obvious answer is write what you're familiar with. So I decided to make the setting of the story what I was familiar with, which is being the only woman in the boardroom for 20 plus years. And so that was very easy to me. And I, I wanted to give people a sneak of what it's like to, to be that only woman in the boardroom, right? To, to walk into the meeting and you're being judged not only for your job performance, not only for what you're saying, because you're generally trying to convince somebody of something in the meeting, if it's a pitch meeting especially, but also you're being judged for being a woman and representing all women because you're the only one who's there. And so it adds this extra layer of challenge and complexity and burden to every conversation. And I knew that was an experience not everybody gets to have, right? Like Silicon Valley is kind of unique to your point. There's a, a unique culture. There's this level of what I call irrational exuberance, which is it's never okay to say like that can't be done. It's a question of how much time and money would it take to do it? But the answer is always yes. And so it, it's a really interesting, unique world. And I wanted to kind of bring people into that world and show them how it feels to be in the boardroom. Mm, yeah. And outside the boardroom, talk about the uh, geography and what people see when they're not making pitches and uh, changing uh, 
money over the table there. Well, you know, probably if I wanted to be accurate to living in Silicon Valley, I probably should have had hours of the book set sitting on the 101 freeway going nowhere, but that wouldn't have been very exciting for a book. So I tend to avoid all those moments where they're actually in transition from location to location. But there are a lot of coffee shops in this book because a lot of work and and business happens in coffee shops, wine bars, because we've got two women in the book who gradually are becoming friends over the course of the book. And then there's some uh, very interesting, unique locations that are real locations in Silicon Valley. One I changed the name of, but it's a hotel, and there's a scene in the book that happens there during something called Cougar Night, which is a a real thing that happens. In fact, I remember myself getting stuck there once. That was what inspired this scene. It's a very uh, taut scene where my main character runs into her not-yet-ex-husband in a very kind of fireworks kind of way in front of her colleagues, and I was trying to think of like, what's the most dramatic location you could be trying to deal with that trauma, drama in, trauma or drama, come up with a new word there, trauma. (laughs) Um, What's the most dramatic like setting? And I thought, oh, I remember when I was trying to hold a business meeting during Cougar Night, which is basically like the bachelor Silicon Valley. Everybody's hitting on each other. It's a bunch of billionaire venture capitalists and a bunch of people trying to hook their billionaire venture capitalists. So it's kind of like a meat market dating setting. And I thought, well, that would be the worst possible place to have this horrible thing happen where your colleagues are all around you and your not yet Mm ex-husband turns up. And so that's a real thing that happens. Uh, You can Google it. And the only thing that I changed in the book is I changed the name of the hotel. So okay, if right. you Google it, you'll find the real one. <laughs> All right, good. Well, you said that this novel was inspired by your own experience uh, as a tech insider, uh, you know, being the only woman in the boardroom. Tell us a little bit about that experience, uh, the years that you spent there and what you actually did. Well, the biggest thing I wanted to get across in this novel is that my experience of being the only woman in the room is that there are so few women, but the women you run across are so supportive of each other. And I just hate the stereotype that says that, you know, two women when put in the same room are going to be competitive with each other and maybe they're going to be bitchy to each other and catty. And that has not been my experience of life at all. And so I felt very strongly that I wanted to write a book about two women that you would expect to be in that situation because one is the wife and one is the mistress and they meet each other for the first time across a boardroom table because the wife, the venture capitalist, has invested in the company of the mistress. Of course, she doesn't know this at the time she made the investment decision. And so I knew that would create fireworks because of that very stereotype, right? You read the first few chapters of the book as a reader and you're thinking, there is no possible way they are going to be able to get out of this situation and deal with it and be civil to each other by the end of this book. And I wanted to pose the question of what if, what if they could work it out? What would that look like? And how would that happen? And how could that even be possible? And so to me, that was trying to share my own experience, which is that women are smarter than the situations that sometimes we get put into. And I'll be a bit mean here and say often by men, but not Mm -hmm. always, but Mm -hmm. we are smarter than those situations. And I think people don't give us enough credit that we do know how to rise above and work through even the worst situations in life. And so that was why I wanted to write the book from that angle. I felt very strongly that my life experience has been one of collaboration with other women where we lift each other up. Well, you know, that scene you're going to talking about, we're going to talk about in just a second, uh, would not have been available to the reading public without Todd, who who turns out to be one of the, uh, I mean, without him, I'm not sure I could have, you know, that just, the 
provided so much tension and, and you hated this guy so much throughout the book that you just couldn't wait for something bad, <laughs> bad to, to happen to him, you know, and you couldn't wait for these women to figure out, you know, that they weren't enemies of themselves. They're really enemies of, of Todd. But let's, let's, let's rewind just a second because that opening you described is when you're reading this first chapter, you're, you're, you're meeting uh, Ren and she's the protagonist. Uh, you we'll talk about her. Uh, she's a venture capitalist, uh, She's in this male-dominated uh, firm, right? But she's trying to make senior partner, I think it is. And and she's got this major investment she's going to make in BioLarge. And she just hadn't met yet the, uh, I guess it's the either the scientist or the, uh, the, the, the lead person there. It turns out to be Carly Santos. Well, in this first chapter, she finds out through her husband's text that he's having an affair with somebody named Carly, right? Right. And you're gonna have you're gonna have this reading you're gonna do in a little bit as far as on the show that'll kind of flesh this out. But I guess where I'm going with this is, where did that idea come with? That was such a because you did it in two point of views. You did the first point of view in Ren, then you, the second chapter you turn right around after you after you're thinking, well, this Carly person's got to be a real, uh, you, you know, she she's a gold digger. She's coming after Ren's husband, and then you see it from her perspective, and it's totally flipped. She is a good person who's suffered a lot. And can't understand why Ren turns on her, you know, in this meeting because, and this is the important thing, Carly didn't know that Todd was married to Ren. <laughs> so where did you come up with that? <laughs> so I, I always love asking this question of authors myself. I, I have a podcast where I talk to women's fiction authors, and right. th this is my favorite question. Like, what was that spark of inspiration at the right. beginning that got you there? And for me with this book, it was a very clear picture of a wife picking up the phone and calling a mistress and the mistress not knowing that she was a mistress. And so like I had this very clear picture of a scene and in earlier drafts of the book, that was actually scene one. That was actually where the book opened. But I realized that sometimes that kind of scene isn't as dramatic when you don't have all the backstory. It's much more dramatic if you know that Carly thinks she's engaged to be married. If you know that Rin knows who Carly is, but Carly doesn't know that she's the mistress. Like, And so then I had to ask myself, how am I going to get all this information in there without dumping huge amounts of backstory during the phone conversation? Right, right. And so that led me to realizing that that wasn't the right place to open the book. That conversation where Rin picks up the phone and calls Carly and happens to be drunk at the time needed to happen a few chapters in, not too far in, but a few chapters in. Yeah. And so that was what got me thinking, okay, so really I need to start by giving you Rin's backstory so that we know that she, she understands that her husband has a mistress. She knows the mistress is called Carly, but she's got no idea who this woman is. And so that's why I opened it the way I did in the first chapter. And you know, from a writing perspective, it's actually kind of fun because I had so much feedback along the way that said, you can't do this. You cannot open with Rin in her office alone. And it's exactly how the book opens on the first page where she's thinking about the fact that she has to walk into this meeting and she's getting ready for it. And it actually is, um, I've had a lot of feedback and the book just won it's a fifth or sixth award. It works, but it's interesting because yeah. it actually breaks some writing rules that you're not supposed to do that. And so it took a little bit of me getting used to have the, having the author confidence to say, you know what? It works. It's okay to break the rules if it works. Yeah. I mean, rule, these rules are made to be broken. I, I didn't sense that. You know, when you talk about backstory, sometimes with backstories, authors can lay too much of an encyclopedic, you know, layer to what's going on there. You didn't do that as, uh, in these first couple of chapters. You had the action moving forward, but as it did, 
they're thinking about things that have recently happened or were going on where she's checking the text or whatever. We're going to let the listeners be their own judge because that's kind of where we are. We've got a reading here that you're going to do, which is from the opening of the book. And this is going to be in the uh, point of view of Wren. Tell us a little bit more about Wren before you read this. So Wren is a venture capitalist. That means that what she does for a living is she invests in startup companies. And the way venture capital works is generally you invest in, you know, 10, 20 companies and you expect one to pay off. It's kind of a bit of a gambling game. But what she's done with this particular company is she's gone all out and she's put it all on the line. She's insisted that her firm insists um, actually invest like two to three times what they normally would invest in a company. And her boss didn't even want to make this investment. So she is very dependent on the success of this particular investment. And as the book opens, she's about to go in and sign the deal to make this investment, which she's kind of bet her career on. And actually, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read one quick thing first, which is the dedication is very relevant to the book. The dedication is actually to my own mother. And what I say is, thanks for teaching me that women don't need to fear their strength or minimize their voice and can be badass, resilient, smart, caring, and open-hearted. Everything I needed to know in life. Well, it's yeah. true. These these characters uh, are, you know, badass and they figure out a way to prevail, but they go through a lot, you know, in the process. So that's that. Thanks for sharing that dedication. And uh, so let's hear what Ren's up to in the opening chapter. Ren scrawled seething on a scrap of paper and crammed it into the feelings jar on her desk. She winced at the glare bouncing off the adjacent skyscrapers, streaming through the wall of windows into her office. The San Francisco weather gods apparently didn't get the memo. Dismal fog was the appropriate backdrop to discovering her husband's affair, not sparkly damn sunshine. She opened her valuation spreadsheet. Perhaps a focus on the data would calm the shitstorm rumbling inside her head. Pop's technique of stuffing unwanted emotions in a jar usually worked, but not this morning, and the meeting with BioLarge started in 10 minutes. The promotion she'd been denied for two years depended on closing this deal. She refused to blow it because of an infidelity brain scramble. The rows of numbers blurred, and she struggled to recall her negotiation points as dozens of memories demanded re-examination. Todd's golf trip last month with her, his mistress. Two weeks ago, when his apartment development project required an extended stay in Nevada through the weekend, with her. Those loving texts when Rin was out of town, I can't manage one more hour without you. What time do you land? Not so loving now just measuring how much longer he had with her. She didn't know which hurt more, Todd lying or him finding this woman, this Carly, so special she was worth risking a perfect partnership. Rin stood and shook out her hands. If more time remained, she'd redo her analysis, but her brain had been buzzing like this since yesterday. Thousands of micro-deceptions, like memory popcorn, every burst a new realization of betrayal. Keep it together, Wren. She focused on the faded poster of John Wayne on a rearing horse opposite her desk, a gift from her oldest brother, Jack, and tried to summon a happy memory of childhood on the ranch in Montana. Eyes closed, she imagined the morning scent of impatient cattle trampling soggy grass. From horseback 
She leaned and opened the barn gate for the squad of grumbling cows who blocked her way, nudging her stirrups with their wet noses. Behind them, Jack and Mom trotted across a field dotted with wild roses to catch up. Mom's head tilted back in laughter, her everyday teal and purple headscarf rippling. Rin opened her eyes and dug her teeth into her bottom lip. She couldn't even summon a real memory instead of wishful thinking. Life had never delivered sunshine and wildflowers. Before she became old enough to ride the morning cattle runs, Mom died from that soul-sucker cancer and Rin had been exiled to live with Aunt Dusty. She closed her laptop, giving up on any hope of adjusting her mood. At least here at Centre Ventures, she was indispensable, and the BioLarge team would arrive any minute. Rin opened her prep folder. With the remaining time, she'd review the background of the last executive she asked to meet today. So far, her negotiations were with Paul, Paul Alexander, this company's CEO, but founding a startup without evaluating the technical founder would be bad business. Annoying that, despite asking him twice, Paul claimed his coworker was too busy with clinical trials to join their prior meetings. Her fingers flipped to the section of the folder with management biographies. A photo of Carly Santos, BioLarge's co-founder and chief scientist, smiled next to a biography full of patents and achievements. Carly. Rin's skin prickled, prickled like the moment you notice inconsistencies in a company's accounts, or at night when you cross the road to avoid the man with the neck tattoo and he follows you. She studied the photo. Carly was a common enough name. There must be hundreds, thousands of women named Carly in the Bay Area. Big doe eyes stared at her with a warmth that never showed in her photos. Rin's steely pose in leadership shots had become an office joke, with the other partners pushing her to smile just this once. But grinning on demand wasn't how a woman got taken seriously in a world where testosterone dripped down the walls. Rin ran her finger along Carly's waves of chestnut brown hair and studied the dimples in her smile. Miss Santos was gorgeous in an unassuming, wouldn't steal your husband kind of way. This woman, this professional, couldn't be Todd's Carly. That would be ridiculous. Spanish soap opera ridiculous. Trashy television ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all that would be ridiculous, which is what uh, these us fiction writers do. We create these ridiculous scenarios and, uh, <laughs> and then try to you know, uh, have the characters uh, work their way out of it. And so... I love this, you know, prickled like the moment you you notice inconsistencies in the company's accounts. That can only come from someone who actually has noticed inconsistencies in company's accounts. Yeah, it's the idea of uh, putting yourself inside your character's frame of reference, right? When you do metaphors and analogies, um, I'm having a lot of fun with that right now because my second book that I'm working on is actually about a digital nomad Instagrammer who is an adventure travel Instagrammer. So she does all the crazy, crazy stuff like throwing herself off cliffs. And so all of my metaphors and analogies are really fun ones about throwing yourself off cliffs or flying or surfing or all of these fun ones. Yeah. And so one thing we didn't tell, uh, say yet, I don't believe, is that with Carly, uh, you know, this Carly, the one there can be plenty of Carlys, but it turns out to be the Carly that uh, the husband is having an affair with. Uh, we find out in the first chapter with her that... Uh, from her point of view that, um, you know, she's sort of shocked that uh, during the course of the meeting where she's meeting this person for the first time is going to fund their company. She 
Rand passes a note across to her that says something like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Or why would you possibly show up? And she's like, she can't figure out what's going on. Why, what kind of bad impression did she make? And, and and she's a survivor herself. But here's the part that I found so intriguing, too. She's engaged to Todd, and she doesn't know that Todd's married to another woman. This Todd guy, I mean, come on. Did you just take everything bad that you'd seen in men in, in Silicon Valley and put them all into Todd? <laughs> He's definitely on the uh, on the eviler side, although he does have some redeeming features. You'll see that by the end of the book, there is actually a moment of interesting redemption. It's not quite redemption, but you discover he's yeah. not exactly the the caricature of a bad guy that the reader wants to believe that he is. He has some yeah. some redeeming things he's done in his life, but. Um, I really needed to make it really bad for the two women. And I needed to make it really bad for Rin in particular, that it couldn't be as simple as I'll just divorce him. Like I really wanted to make her struggle with getting out of the relationship as a way that she and Carly could bond in that they'd understand each other and some of the mistakes they'd made over time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Todd is definitely on, on the bad sociopathic end of the husbands you'd never want to have scale. (laughs) <laughs> but I will tell you that as I was researching this book and I was looking at some of the forums, did you know there's actually forums where you can register your husband because you think he might be married to people in other states? Like this exists and you can go look up people on these forums and read the stories and the the wife in one state will share the whole detail. And then sometimes you'll see the wife in another state pop up and share her whole detail on the same guy. And so knowing that this actually does happen Give me more confidence that I wasn't going so far down the path that this was completely unrealistic and could never happen. Yeah, it actually happens. It's insane. You know, the databases in all the U.S. states aren't yet linked. Um, in fact, my husband and I got married a few years ago, and we were shocked when we went to get married in San Francisco that all we needed was a driving license to sign the piece of paper. And I was like, "Don't you want to? Don't you want to run a background check? Make sure neither of us are already married?" They're like, "Oh no, we don't do that." <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, marriage is uh, is a work in progress anyway and takes a lot of effort. Um, I'm, I'm saying this from the standpoint of my wife having to put up with me, but, uh, you know, I'm just thinking that's hard enough. I mean, who wants to be married two or three other times? I mean, that the, the, the logistics of that, come on. Yeah, yeah. Like, it feels like you could never relax because you'd be constantly trying to plan, like, what did I say yesterday and where am I and what, where did I say I was? And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have the energy for it personally. Yeah. But Todd does because, you know, after uh, they find out and you describe the phone call where they confront confront uh, Carly and Carly's kind of pushing back, uh, they sort of stumble upon the fact that uh, Todd is trying to win both of them back at the same time. Uh, and they're both going through this, should I take him back kind of thing. Uh, and then when they find out that Todd was doing that at the same time <laughs> that he was assuring each of them that everything was fine, they sort of at that point bond together and figure out, okay, we gotta we gotta work together. You know, women power. You know, let's put Todd down. But then you bring in the lawyers, the divorce, and Todd's got this scheme. And I'm not going to reveal what happens, but it becomes really difficult for Ren to get out of this situation and and Carly as well. And then you throw a nice twist in at the end. Did this kind of, this whole story, uh, are you the kind of writer, does it evolve over time? We're kind of working into our writing life segment here, but because uh, some of these plot twists here, I found very intriguing. Uh, was that mapped out from the beginning or did you kind of stumble with some of these ideas along the way? 
Yeah, you know, you're asking the age-old question of, um, is a writer a plotter where, where we know all the answers up front or mm-hmm. a pantser where we go by the seat of our pants? And in this first book, I was definitely more towards the seat of the pants end. I kind of knew the beginning and the end, but between the two was pretty fuzzy. So I knew what I wanted to have happen by the end and I knew what, what would happen in the beginning. And I didn't have a lot of milestones in the in the middle between those. And it meant that I definitely did more rewriting and revising. I, I think I must have done at least 10 versions of this book over five years. And so that's definitely not the most efficient way to do it. It might be the only way I knew how to do it for my first book, right? I was learning the art of novel writing. And if anything, you can get too caught up. I think when it's your first book, your debut novel or your first book you're writing, you can get too caught up in trying to do everything right that you just kind of get stuck and you don't let yourself write. And so the fact that I didn't know all the answers and that I didn't know what I was doing a lot of the time in the earlier versions probably allowed me to be more creative because if I'd known all the things I was doing wrong, I would have like just gotten stuck, right? I actually learned some really big lessons around backstory that Um, In my original version, I had tons of backstory for both characters. And then I did what everybody advises, which is I took it all out, like all of it. I was ruthless about this, Uh, maybe coming from tech where you get very ruthless about like making decisions and just closing things down. And so I was ruthless and took it all out. And then the, the big change I actually made in later versions is putting little bits of it back in so that the reader had more context on the history. And for example, a little bit of what I read there about Rin coming from Montana and her coming from an all-male background where her brothers were able to stay home and she was actually sent away. Some of these things really play into her psyche and were very important on why she's trying to prove herself in a male world and why it's so important to her that she succeeds. Yeah, and I think the fact that you actually wrote all that down and, and was valuable to the writing process, because if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have known the characters as well. Uh, you didn't like to ne- tell the reader everything because readers are smart. They can figure some of these things out. But you're right. Uh, and I've done this, too, in the novel I've been working on is you put all this stuff in, you go back and you slice it, most of it out and just keep what doesn't interfere with the forward progress of the story. Right. Yeah, there's a great there's a great um, a great piece of advice. I think it's um, Jenny Nash or Lisa Cron. I think they both say this. Um, they've written a book called Story Genius, which is great. And uh, one of the things they say is. Uh, backstory comes in context, right? We all think about our history at the moment that we have to make a decision. Any kind of decision, we rely on the history of what we've done in the past. Have we ever made a similar decision? What happened? And so it was actually easy when I saw it that way because Rin has to make a series of decisions through the book, what to do about her marriage, what to do about Carly, what to do about this company that she's invested in. Is she going to walk away from the deal? And so it was easy for me to say, okay, at every decision point, she's going to look back at what happened in the past. And that's an opportunity to have her think into her own history and to draw on her own experience. Mm. Did you know much about, uh, you know, using point of view, different point of views when you started writing your first novel? Or is this something that developed for you as you went through the process? I'm a big reader. I love reading. And I, I was aware of the concept of, you know, first person, am I writing an I novel? I did this. I went there. Am I writing third person? And I definitely had read a lot of books that I enjoyed that were multiple points of view, right? Um, in fact, some of the books I enjoy the most have four or five points of view, which I was not brave enough to tackle. I'm impressed when people do that and are able to get enough development into each character when you've got four or five of them in a book. Um, so I knew that, but 
there are some core things you learn, like um, how to stay inside your character's head. It's very easy to jump out of your character and to see something that she wouldn't actually see, right? She doesn't see what she looks like unless she looks in the mirror, which is trite and overdone. And so like, it's very easy when you're starting out to, to describe things that your character doesn't actually see, or even more importantly, to describe them in a way that she wouldn't see them. One of the things I had to learn is, you know, if your character's having a, a bad day, they're not gonna notice the blue sky outside. They're gonna notice the trash on the sidewalk under the blue sky outside. And so really putting yourself in your character's frame of mind, the learning for me was more about what would this character notice at this moment in time, given how she feels. She feels angry, she's in the lawyer's office. What is she gonna notice in the, in the lawyer's office? It's not gonna be the nice decor. It's gonna be that the walls feel like they're closing in on her. And so like trying to get yourself inside their their minds so that the things that you're seeing through their eyes are actually how they would see them, if that makes sense. No, it does. Uh, and and I was, as I'm thinking here, you know, I read the book and I mostly saw it in, in Ren's and Carly's point of view. Uh, did we ever find ourselves in Todd's point of view? Did you ever try that when you were either writing the book or... Yeah, I I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I decided I would let him continue to be a little uh, mysterious by the end of the book, even though the reader does discover some things <laughs> that have a, a question mark. And I felt very strongly that I didn't want to write a revenge novel. Like I wanted to write a novel that was about the two women. And obviously he's a critical part of their story, right? He's what brings them together. He's in part the enemy in the book that they're trying to fight. But I didn't want to write a revenge novel where the book became only and all about him. And I actually got pushed in that direction quite a lot by various people. Some of my beta readers, a lot of the agents were like, no, 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 you need to make much more of this book about him and getting the revenge on him. And I've had, you know, a couple of readers say, gosh, I wish they killed him. So I'll, I'll give it away. It's not a murder book, okay? <laughs> they don't yeah. murder him. They don't well, chop him into well, little pieces and put him in the ocean. I, I, but I think, Lenny, you did such a good job of, of building him up into this, uh, you know, just massive evildoer who, who, who totally disrespects women uh, that, uh, you know, everybody wanted that little bit of revenge. And you don't disappoint there. It's just that you're right. You actually work on the relationships between the women too because it's also not usual to find that, two women in that situation could figure out a way to find common ground. Um, but Todd helps them do that. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a quick question before we wrap up listeners, we're going to go over in just a second. We're going to actually uh, jump over to Patreon in a minute. We're going to go to uh, uh, talk about uh, writing strong, but relatable female characters with Lainey Cameron. We're going to, she's going to tell us some of the things she did and some things she learned. And, and that's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte readers podcast. You can check us out there. It's about a cup of coffee a month or uh, maybe a craft beer, whatever you like. Uh, uh, that'll get you into our Patreon channel and all the great uh, exclusive stuff. But uh, Lenny, one last question here. Um, now that you've done this novel and you're working on another one, um, if you go back to when you first started writing, given what you've learned over that time period, you know what would you tell that uh, starting out writer self something of value you've learned uh, that had you known it, maybe it would have, you know, helped a little bit. Oh, the the one that comes to mind is one that helped a lot that I think I got lucky and not everyone realizes or gets this opportunity, but a uh, writing community, find your writing community early and not only find them, but work out how to give back. So if I look at this story of this book and my career as an author, which is just taking off now, this is the book's been out in the world for less than a year. It just came out in audiobook. 
But if I look at that story, it was all supported by other writers who helped me along the way. I got very engaged with a group called Women's Fiction Writers Association, which is people who write the genre that is women's fiction. And they were my beta readers. They were my advisors. They helped me work out the book's path to market. They helped me work out how to edit. I mean, each step of the road, these were the people who helped me, who advised me. But also, I got to know many people because I worked out how to add value to them. So early early in the book's progression, even as I was just on my second draft five plus years ago, I thought, okay, how can I add value? Obviously, I'm not going to teach workshops or anything. I'm a new writer myself, but I'm pretty good on Zoom. I'm pretty good on technology. These are things I'm comfortable with. So I volunteered to run the workshops for that association. And so I was able to take the skills I had, which might not be craft skills yet, but I was able to take those skills and apply them, which meant that I met a ton of writers through that. And then when my turn came and my book was coming out or I needed a beta reader or I needed a blurb for an author, I wasn't reaching out to someone who had no idea who I was, emailing them, you know, at the blue saying, hey, would you read my book? It was like, hey, it's Lainey. We know each other. Would you be willing to read my book? And so that's my advice is work out how to get engaged early in a writer community and then see how you can give back, see how you can add value to other writers. It might be beta reading. It could be a lot of things, whatever skills you already have. It might be creating graphics, like whatever skills you have, see if you can bring that to the writer world because those connections will take you the rest of the way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great advice. And it, it sounds like it's universal because you've been all over the world. Uh, uh, here in North Carolina, they refer to us as the writing estate because of the number of writers per capita. It's a very uh, supportive community. And, uh, you know, go to your writing club and volunteer to be on a committee or, or, or a board or speaker chairman. When I was speaker chairman of the Charlotte Writers Club, met lots of authors. And then, you know, do a thing like a podcast and invite authors on. Then maybe one day, They'll invite you on, although you've got the best of women's fiction. You're probably not going to let any Todd's come on your podcast, right? <laughs> probably not, although we could get into a whole conversation on what's the definition of women's fiction, which is right. interesting, but it is focused on women's fiction. And that's another example of me giving back, right? So now that right. I have a platform and I've got 7,000 odd followers on Instagram, I wanted to work out how to use that to give back, to help uplift other writers. And so that's what the video series, the best of women's fiction, the podcast are about. And it's great because now I can use kind of my extended platform also to help other writers. That's, that's great. So where do they find the best of women's fiction podcast? Anywhere podcast or listen to? Yep, absolutely. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, or you can find all the Google podcasts. You can find all the links at bestofwomensfiction.com. And then you can find all the links to my book and anything you want to learn about me on my own website, which is laneycameron.com. All right. And all that'll be in the show notes. We'll have all those links as well at charlotteroospodcast.com. And if you want to hear this uh, this combination of a Scottish and Californian accent, you can go to the Best of Women's Fiction Podcast and check it out. Or jump over to Patreon to listen again, because we're going to go talk now. Hey, Laney, look, I want to thank you for uh, for appearing on Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been so fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, 
please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.